Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariash, and thank you for tuning in today. A little bit of housekeeping before we get started. Be sure to visit our website, b'naibrith.org, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. The easiest way to get the latest episode is to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play on your smartphone. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Jonathan Sarna, a preeminent scholar of American Jewish history at Brandeis University, where he serves as both the Joseph H. and Bell R. Braun Professor of American Jewish History in the Department of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies, and as the director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. The second edition of Sarna's book, American Judaism, A History, was just published by Yale University Press. Today we'll be discussing the constantly evolving story of Jews in America as documented in Jonathan Sarna's second edition of this book. We'll also be discussing his latest project, an introduction to the reissuing of Cosella Wayne by American Jewish author Cora Wilburn, an interesting story by itself. And additionally, we'll be talking about some real-life challenges faced by American Jews today, in particular, the deeply distressing rise of anti-Semitism around the country. Jonathan, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Delighted to be with you. Well, let's talk first about Cosella Wayne, um, an American Jewish woman, author, um, the author of uh, the first uh, American Jewish novel by an American Jewish woman. Uh, tell us about how you decided to um, bring her back with this new edition of her book. Well, um, the name Cora Wilburn was one of those mysterious names on old lists of American Jewish women writers there were well-known figures like Emma Lazarus, and then there was Cora Wilburn. And the question was, who's Cora Wilburn? Nobody knew anything about her, what she had written, and so on. So, really beginning many years ago, I started a folder every time I came across something. Uh, and then I was invited to the Institute for Advanced Studies at the Hebrew University, and the theme that they uh, had was the cultural contributions of Jewish women. And I said, well, I'll take all of the information I've put together and see if there's more to say on Cora Wilburn. Uh, and in preparation for that, I got several of my Brandeis students to help me scour the web. And suddenly, all sorts of material appeared on Cora Wilburn from journals we never heard of. They were old spiritualist journals like Banner of Light and so on. Hundreds of pages. So I diligently printed it all out, shipped it off to Jerusalem and said, I'm going to read all of this stuff. Uh, nobody's really looked at the work of Cora Wilburn. And in reading through it, I suddenly came across the serialized novel published in a non-Jewish spiritualist journal, but full of Jewish material uh, and full of interest. And I rapidly realized, since the novel 
was dated uh, 1860, uh, that uh, uh, this was an important find. And then I had the great good fortune to discover Cora Wilburn's diary on which this novel is based. So even though I could see that it was an autobiographical novel, and Casella Wayne bears the same initials as Cora Wilburn, now I had the proof. I had the original diary from the 1840s. And it's a spectacular story, really, because uh, Cora Wilburn almost uniquely had traveled the world. Her father was a crooked gem merchant, and gem merchants needed to go to lots of places, so she was all over. Uh, the novel itself uh, takes us through England, France, Germany, uh, but also takes us to Venezuela. And I knew from the diary that she had indeed lived in Venezuela for several years. That's where her parents died. Um, and um, uh, then uh, she comes to the United States. I know now uh, from the diary and also from census records that she came to the United States in 1848. Uh, and the, the, the novel closes really um, uh, with her time in Philadelphia. Um, I now know that she later spent time in the Boston area as well. But it turns out that not only is this a very early American Jewish novel full of interest, and it teaches us about poor Jews. We often hear about rich Jews, think Rebecca Gratz and the wealthy Philadelphia Jewish women uh, in her circle. Uh, Cora Wilburn teaches us about the other side of the, um, uh, of the economic spectrum. And um, uh, it's a very early novel uh, dealing with Central European Jews. Most of our early American Jewish novels are later. They deal with East European Jews. And of course, uh, this is a novel by a woman, about a woman, uh, and those are few and far between in the middle of the 19th century. And that makes this novel especially interesting and important. Uh, so really, this is the first time the novel is issued between the covers of a book. Previously, it was serialized. Pretty well nobody has read or studied it. And I'm hoping that this novel and maybe uh, the other works by Cora Wilburn will now become part of our understanding of 19th century American Jewish culture and that these works will be read and enjoyed and studied in the years to come. Well, Cora Wilburn was born, I think, in 1824. Uh, what was her childhood like and what was it in her upbringing, do you think, that inspired her to be a writer? I mean, after all, women uh, writing novels in, in those days, uh, as you've said, at least in the American Jewish context and the, the broader American context were really a few and far between. And um, here was a, a person who um, 
embarked on this literary career. What was it there in, in her uh, upbringing, in her environment that inspired her to write? So her father was a gem merchant. Her mother uh, must have been someone who uh, encouraged her to write. Uh, the very fact that she keeps a diary and uh, suggests that. And we know from the diary that she was also a big reader. And, of course, traveling so much, spending so much time on ship. Uh, also would have encouraged her uh, to uh, be a reader and uh, perhaps inspired her to write. But the real reason that she took up writing, I think, uh, was that she was an orphan when uh, her father, uh, who was wealthy, died. Um, much uh, of the money that he had was stolen. So she suddenly is a very poor um, and uh, for a single woman uh, she doesn't have that many options of respectable jobs um, uh, yes you could have become uh, um, uh, someone who sewed and she did a lot of sewing but uh, teaching which she didn't like and writing were the respectable jobs uh, middle-class jobs open to women at that time and uh, she clearly was gifted as a writer uh, and it's no surprise that she uh, selected writing as a bid really to make her way back into uh, 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 a middle and upper class uh, uh, a way of life uh, she worked very hard. She never really had lots of money, but she had respect for herself um, uh, in a way that working physically as, uh, as, as someone who sewed or, or lived in someone else's house uh, would not have allowed her uh, to do. She felt that that was beneath her. Writing gave her an audience. Uh, she was respected in many circles uh, for her intellect. And we even know uh, that there were some children named Cora Wilburn uh, because their mothers hoped that they too would be educated, would be writers, would be thinkers like Cora Wilburn. But I do think that the deprivation she felt uh, that she experienced led her uh, to the career that, that she, she eventually entered. Now, over the course of her life, uh, Cora Wilburn had uh, varying degrees of flirtations with other faiths, uh, Catholicism, spiritualism, which you mentioned, uh, before ultimately returning to Judaism. How did these experiences impact her relationship with Judaism? Did it make her uh, more devout when she returned? It's really fascinating, and there are not so many people, let alone women, who are conversant uh, with different religious traditions the way she is. Um, uh, when she was orphaned in Venezuela, not surprisingly, given the religious character of Venezuela, she's taken in by Catholics, 
and is more or less forced to convert to Catholicism. Um, we know from her diary how much she regretted that conversion, the more so when it turned out uh, that the person who took her in was an adulteress, and she viewed her as a great hypocrite. And Cora Wilburn comes to America in part in hope of returning to her people, her faith, and so on. Um, spiritualism, which a bit like uh, later Unitarianism or maybe Buddhism today, was not a Christian faith, and there were people who said, well, you can be a Jew and a spiritualist, uh, you can be a Christian and a spiritualist. Um, she didn't so much think she was abandoning Judaism, and nobody converted to spiritualism, um, but uh, she was in that religion um, in its very earliest phase, even before the Civil War, Spiritualism takes off in America during the Civil War because with so many young people killed in the war, it was a great comfort to think, oh, we can communicate with the spirit of our son um, uh, now that he's been taken from us. So spiritualism really grows at that time. Um, she breaks with spiritualism in the late 1860s there was more and more evidence of um, fraud, and uh, she was worried about the activities of some of her fellow spiritualists. And then she returns to reform Judaism. She had been brought up, of course, Orthodox. Uh, she had a very difficult relationship with her father, but she felt that liberal Judaism embodied the progressive values that she espoused, and really to the end of her life, um, she feels connected uh, to Judaism and uh, knows a liberal rabbis. Uh, she has some friends who are more traditional rabbis, although uh, according to the diary, um, she only really observed Judaism traditionally on the major uh, holidays late in life. Uh, but I do think she was someone who took religion and religious ritual seriously, and in her later years she writes essays on Judaism and produces poems uh, for various holidays. So would you say then that uh, based on, on her return to Judaism, is it reflected in, in her writings? Um, the, does it add to our knowledge of the Jewish experience in the 19th century? Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, first of all, scholars of the 19th century have written much more about Jews who convert to Christianity. They've not paid attention to the people who came back, but I'm very interested in some of the links here between spiritualism and early Reform Judaism and how some of the progressive beliefs, some of the causes that Cora Wilburn espouses 
later become causes that other Jews take up. Uh, of course, early on, she's deeply anti-slavery. She's one of very uh, few Jews who actually publishes in William Lloyd Garrison's journal. Um, and uh, some of her anti-slavery work uh, is much noted. Uh, she's going to be deeply involved in early feminist activities and throughout her life will espouse uh, the cause of women. There is a very interesting letter which I cite in which she writes to a young woman named Henrietta Zoll encouraging uh, uh, her and, and really predicting that hers would be the era of women and that there would be more opportunities for women. And she also corresponded with other uh, women writers like Mary Anton. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I think that she uh, is an exemplar of a Jewish woman who is writing hymns, uh, who is taking Judaism seriously in early collections of American Jewish poetry, and even in some early uh, Reformed prayer books, you will find poems uh, by Cora Wilburn. Jonathan, let's move now to the the new edition of American Judaism, A History, uh, the book I think originally published in 2004. Uh, what changes have you witnessed uh, and observed in the American Jewish community that prompted you uh, to consider the second edition? Uh, it's really a wonderful question. And when Yale came along and asked me to think about it. Uh, that was my question. And as I began working, I, I realized, wow, amazing how much has happened. I mean, to give an example, um, uh, the, the first edition doesn't include any material on gays, lesbians, LGBTQ, as we now would say. Um, well, suddenly that's a major um, movement across American Jewish life. All of the different movements in Judaism are adapting to that reality. Uh, and I knew that I needed to uh, uh, add a section. I, I was very proud to have found a picture um, of the first Jewish AIDS quilt uh, and I, I did want to talk a little bit about the story of Jews and AIDS and how that was experienced in the early gay synagogues. So that's one subject. Um, another um, fascinating subject that's not in the first edition uh, is really the extent to which the new generation of American Jews doesn't even remember that we once thought that you could identify a Jew simply by looking at him or her. Um, the end of Jewish radar 
that the end of a sense that there is a particular way of being Jewish and the rise in appreciation for Jews of color. Uh, in addition, uh, we've seen many Jews of different types enter the community thanks to conversion and intermarriage and adoption. Uh, so that's changed the very nature of Jewish peoplehood in our time. And I thought it was very important to write about that. But in addition, um, uh, the conservative movement is, <coughs> excuse me, certainly different uh, than it had been in the earlier edition. I wanted to talk about that. There are a great many new statistics, the Pew study and the like, that needed to be uh, discussed, new developments uh, concerning intermarriage. Um, and I wanted to talk about the impact of the Great Recession, uh, which did have a major impact on American Jewish life across the spectrum. And I thought it was important uh, to bring that story from 2008-9 uh, into the narrative. Uh, so by the time I was done, my problem was how to uh, uh, keep uh, new developments within a reasonable size. It wasn't a book. I had to get it into a chapter, uh, and uh, I hope uh, readers will see uh, how much is new. And then I wrote an introduction in which I summarized some of the new scholarship in the field. Uh, this wasn't the place to write a whole new history, but there are new books I wanted to talk about uh, how some of those books, some of them by my own students or people familiar with American Judaism, uh, change or expand what we know of American Jewish life really in every era from the colonial uh, to the present. So, just, one, uh, just one question, uh, Jonathan, before we move on to, to the, um, the, the question of anti-Semitism in America. Um, we know how much the Internet has impacted our own lives um, in every which way. Um, did you find that the Internet has affected uh, American Judaism in, yeah, in any way? It has affected uh, American Judaism. I think it's probably still too early to write a full account of the many ways that it has um, but uh, to give an obvious example, once upon a time, many young Jews went to synagogue because that's where you went to meet your friends on a Saturday morning or Friday night. Well, of course, today, a lot of young Jews meet their friends on the Internet, and when they go to the temple or synagogue, they're told to shut off that phone which connects them to their friends. So um, one can begin to see the very opposite today of what was once the case of, of where, what the house of worship does. Uh, at the same time, uh, the internet has made all sorts of things uh, possible. Synagogues can really create community in new ways, uh, thanks to the many, uh, to the synagogue listserv, and um, I, I think there are many people who find uh, that uh, 
the internet is able to connect them in ways that were not previously possible. Uh, the internet has also transformed the lives of shut-ins, of the elderly, of the bedridden, uh, any number of accounts of uh, services that are streamed to those uh, who cannot attend them, uh, that's all a revolution. But I suspect that we will look back and say one day, the internet was as big a revolution as the development of printing, uh, and so we're probably only at the very beginning of uh, that revolution, and one hears about uh, new developments uh, all the time. Uh, so uh, uh, maybe in the third edition, we'll be able to say even more about the impact of, uh, of the Internet. Well, we look forward, we look forward to that. I want to ask you now about anti-Semitism in the United States. It's, in, it's been spiking in Europe for some time. Uh, how do you account for the stark increase here in the United States in recent years? Um, I, I think it's, of course, very important. Um, and the rise of anti-Semitism is connected with the rise of hatred of all kinds. Uh, in the United States, just as in Europe, the rise of anti-Semitism went hand in hand uh, with Islamophobia and other forms of prejudice. Um, I think uh, it's fair to say that once upon a time, uh, people in government tried to tamp down uh, hatred and part of the role of government was to insist that religious racial uh, bigotry was un-American. Uh, that has not happened um, under the current administration and indeed um, uh, that seemed to legitimate uh, hatred. Uh, I have no doubt uh, that the internet once again has played an important role, uh, as has technology generally. It's not clear that there are more anti-Semites than there were before. It is very clear that anti-Semites can carry out many more anti-Semitic incidents, that they can, uh, with guns, kill many more people than before, uh, one person can do an enormous amount of mischief uh, and worse uh, in a way that was not previously uh, possible. But the rise of anti-Semitism, I think, is part and parcel of a, a change in atmosphere uh, in the United States uh, that has led uh, to divisiveness, to hatred, uh, um, and uh, to extremists on both sides feeling um, new freedom uh, to say things that would have been utterly unacceptable a few years ago. Historically, would you say anti-Semitism in the United States has been a constant or has been 
cyclical. For example, uh, Jews were denied the right to vote in some states in, in the 19th century, uh, but those laws were eventually eliminated. And you've written about uh, General Ulysses S. Grant's expulsion order in, in 1862, which would have banned Jews from the Tennessee Department uh, during the Civil War. But the president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, overruled the order. Uh, with that not happening again, but then, years later, we saw the lynching of Leo Frank, Father Coughlin, uh, and so on. Um, what's your view? Constant or cyclical? I, I do think that hatred generally in America has cycled up and down, um, and so uh, is the case with anti-Semitism. Um, we, haven't, we've, we haven't seen... Uh, an outburst of anti-Semitism uh, since the 1990s. Um, and so a whole generation has grown up thinking uh, quite mistakenly that anti-Semitism was just history, that it doesn't exist. Only people of color, they thought, uh, suffer in America. Um, and that's why um, uh, the cry in Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us, followed by the attacks in Pittsburgh, in Poway. Uh, these were so shocking to younger Jews, to my own students, who really had never uh, experienced uh, this kind of anti-Semitism. Uh, of course, um, uh, we know the 1950s. Uh, saw violent anti-Semitism. Many will remember hearing of the blowing up of the temple uh, in Atlanta. And that was part of a, a whole series of attacks on synagogues, on uh, the homes of rabbis, and so on in the South in the 1950s. Uh, and that, of course, was again part of a larger explosion of terror. Uh, we think of the Ku Klux Klan, of attacks on black churches, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, what is unusual in the case of anti-Semitism, but by no means unique to our time, uh, is that Jews experience anti-Semitism both from the right and from the left. Uh, that has, has been true for a long time, I think Stalin and Hitler, uh, but we are definitely uh, seeing it in our own day, and um, uh, we are um, uh, also seeing, I think, uh, uh, a great deal of stress in American society and culture. Um, the population is changing. There is uh, a fear that uh, uh, maybe the white population is shrinking vis-a-vis -vis people of color. Um, uh, there are new sexual mores. Uh, and, and, and all of these uh, changes lead to stress and lead to stereotyping and uh, once again, we see that some have an easy answer to all of uh, 
uh, the problems of our time, and the answer is it's all the fault of the Jews. Uh, and, and some of them, very frighteningly, uh, will even use language that we didn't think we'd ever see anymore. Let, let's um, uh, extinguish the Jews. Uh, really Nazi-type language, a reminder that the vast majority of people alive today no longer have conscious memories of the Holocaust and therefore are able to express sentiments and ideas that nobody in the United States uh, would have uttered uh, in the 1950s, uh, soon after a war uh, that we had fought against the Nazis. But now, uh, lots of people get away with saying those kinds of things, uh, and uh, I, I think uh, we're likely to see uh, this danger with us uh, for some time to come, although I think it's very important for Jews to remember that it's not only against Jews. There are many other groups, immigrants, Muslims, African Americans, who are likewise witnessing a rise uh, in hatred directed against them. Well, Dr. Jonathan Sarna, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. Uh, the uh, two books are Cozella Wayne, uh, or Will and Destiny, by Cora Wilburn, with an introduction by Jonathan Sarna, and uh, American Judaism, a history, the second edition, uh, both of them now just published. And uh, we thank you so much, Jonathan, really for taking the time uh, to be with us today. Thank you for listening to our podcast, everyone. Please visit our website, b'nebrith.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Dr. Jonathan Sarna of Brandeis University, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.